Well, amen. Church, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just to kind of refresh our memory, recap where we've been in uh, this year-long look at the storyline of Scripture. And we've landed here in the epistles after having looked at the Gospels and seen this overarching theme in this continuing message of the kingdom of God. Specifically seeing that in the last Gospel we looked at, which was the Gospel of Luke. And we saw that Christ, in his first coming, inaugurated the kingdom of God. And then in the book of Acts, we saw how the kingdom of God was meant to be continued to be established through his people as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of sharing the gospel, declaring the glory of God in the gospel, and then people continuing to come to Christ. Now, As we've moved to the epistles, we're seeing what does that continue to look like as the the church is established and and people continue to to preach the kingdom of God? And how do we live in light of these truths and these realities, this message that Christ preached? And so we have the epistles, letters written to the churches to hold them accountable, to encourage them, to help them to grow and to continue to develop in their faith. So as we transition into the Christmas season, this year provides us with one of those anomalies in the calendar. I've mentioned this already. It kind of leaves us scratching our heads because the usual rhythm that we would be traditionally used to is that the first Sunday after Thanksgiving is the first Sunday of Advent. And so, nonetheless, you you don't see any Advent candles up here. We don't have anything prepped for that because I myself had to readjust. I looked at the calendar and realized that because Thanksgiving fell early this year, that means that Advent doesn't start until next Sunday. Now, I think that this is incredibly meaningful also in the sense that it builds for us an even greater anticipation for celebrating Christ in the season of Advent. As Advent is supposed to be for the express purpose of building anticipation for celebrating Christ in his second coming. Advent, of course, meaning coming from the Latin adventus, meaning coming Right, And so the entire purpose for this season is for us to look back in anticipation of looking forward to Christ's second coming. So this morning, I want us to intently look at how we celebrate Christmas. More specifically, I want us to look at what I think is the overarching theme of Advent. So you can kind of call this sermon the Advent of Advent, right? So, and the first theme of Advent is hope. I'm going to do so by, and my prayer is that our hearts will be tuned to sharply focus on Christ this Christmas, maybe even more so than ever before. As we look here at the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 18 through 25, I want us to see the overarching theme of Advent, that being hope, the hope that awaits us, the hope that was provided us in Christ, and the hope that keeps us as we continue to endure. So I want to invite you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for this morning, once again coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we see your manifold wisdom plainly displayed for us in Christ, I pray, God, as we see that unfolded before us in your word, that you would help this Christmas season to sharply focus our minds and hearts to see your power displayed, your providential glory made known in the incarnation. God, I pray that you would protect me from error, Guard our hearts and our minds this morning. Keep us free from distraction and and help us to focus intently on your word that we might leave this place eager to walk in obedience to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So we begin this verse, our first verse for this morning, verse 18, with that word for. Now, it's not our usual larger form of that word, therefore, but nonetheless it carries the same principle that we typically apply, that when we see that, we want to know, well, what is this that's being referenced to? So, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Well, well, why is he saying that? So, if you back up and we look at the beginning of the letter here, we see Paul going and and, and sending this letter to the church at Corinth, those who sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into this testimony of thanksgiving for them. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so he's, he's giving thanks for the faith that has been made known in their lives, that God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gives this appeal, beginning in verse 10. For there's become this division in the church. The church has begun to divide themselves among what it means is each one of you says, beginning in verse 12, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He 
gives this rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. And he goes on to say in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so the whole point here is that their unity is not in who it, who it is that they follow, what teacher they're aligned with, or who did this or who did that, but that our unity is in Christ, that very thing that he gives thanks for them, the gospel that they have surrendered to. And then we begin our verse for today. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So they're supposed to be included in that us who are being saved. So don't, don't fraction yourself into these different factions. Rather, remember that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, so I want us to ask ourselves. He says, for the word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? For that, I want to reference us to another letter of Paul's, 1 Timothy. You can turn there, if you will, or the verse will be on the screen. 1 Timothy, in chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Paul says this to his servant Timothy as he's leading, he himself is seeking to lead the church. For there is... One God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what is the word of the cross that Paul came preaching to the church at Corinth. What is the word of the cross that is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, by the, it is the power of God. It is that at the right and proper time, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And not only that, but this is a testimony which is given at the proper time, which means it is, it is being preached and is being made known in the lives of those who hear and believe at the proper time time. So in Christ, God went from speaking in time and space to physically stepping into time and space for the express purpose of being our necessary ransom to make us right with God. This is the word of the cross. But before he could go to the cross at the proper time, that that testimony might be preached at the proper time, he had to come to us in human flesh at the proper time. See, the cross doesn't happen without the incarnation. This is the manifold wisdom of God. This is the profound miracle of the incarnation. This is the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas is the hope of the cross. This is what makes Christmas so special. This is what makes Christmas worth celebrating. The hope of Christmas is not simply the arrival of Jesus, but rather in what Jesus arrived to accomplish. 
That's why we can find continual hope in Christmas. Because it is a calendared reminder of the power of God to save sinners. The word of the cross begins with the story of Christmas. And the story of Christmas points us to the cross. For this, we need look no further than the announcement of Jesus' arrival. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we see the angel making the announcement to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which, of course, means God with us. This pronouncement of his name shall be Jesus, and he shall save their people, his people, from their sins. This Christmas, make an intentional effort to not get caught up in the periphery, but to see the power of God to save sinners. This is it from the first announcement of Christ's arrival. The purpose was clear. The providence laid out that God's purpose in sending Christ was for the purpose that he would save his people. If Christmas were simply about the arrival of Christ, as we so often isolate it to be, we would be left with so many questions. When we isolate Christmas to simply be about Christ's arrival, we take Christmas out of its context completely. Why did God send his son? Why did we need God to be with us? Why did we need him to be Emmanuel? Why veil him in flesh? You see, church, you can't rightly celebrate Christmas without the cross in view. As we continue reading our text for today, we pick back up in verse 19. And we see Paul, after founding his encouragement and exhortation to the church at Corinth, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So don't get caught up in folly. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of of God. So this word of the cross is the power of God. And he continues to expound on this. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So here Paul Cites from Isaiah chapter 29. Now, that should pique our interest because as we just looked at Matthew chapter 1 at the 
pronouncement of Jesus' birth, and his name shall be Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. And we have a sighting there in Matthew, also from Isaiah. In Isaiah, we see, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Or rather, what we see there in Matthew, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. So this quote here from Isaiah chapter 29 comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, which of course comes after this announcement of Emmanuel, after this announcement of the child being born. The full context of it is this, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In the sending of Christ, the pronouncement of Christ, the sending of Christ, the Lord has said he would do wonderful things with his people. Once again, we go on to read again, backing up in Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 9, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what were the wonderful things that were being pronounced that would thwart the wisdom of the wise so that the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden? It's Christ. It's this child that would be born. It's this virgin that shall conceive and bring forth a son. Some a hundred years after the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah giving a similar pronouncement on how Christ and the coming of Christ and and that through that the Lord was thwarting the wisdom of the wise. Uh, Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord so so what wisdom is in them? The word of the Lord gives forth wisdom. The counterintuitive work of God intentionally uses the very things which this world would lift up as having all hope, all joy, all peace, entirely worthy of pursuit in Christ. God uses such things to show how all these things are subject to his will. See, the incarnation is an indictment on the hope of this world and a call to believe in true If true hope could be found in ourselves or in this world, what need would we have of Christ? But as it is, we can find no hope in this world. Because God has used the wisdom of this world to destroy, he's destroyed the wisdom of this world by using the lower things of this world. And the discernment of the discerning, he thwart 
So he can ask, where is the, the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Because God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. This is where we allow our minds and hearts to so easily deceive us. Our minds, which are corrupted by our sinful heart of flesh, will convince us that we can find all manner of hope, joy, relief, satisfaction by simply indulging in the desires of our heart. The indictment of the incarnation is that we won't stop pursuing our heart's desires until God supernaturally acts to redeem our hearts and draw us to himself. This Christmas, if you are following the wisdom, understanding, and desires of your own heart, see and know that in Christ, God has made foolish the things of this world. Repent, believe, and return to him. Paul continues to expound on this topic of wisdom and the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Pick back up in verse 21 of our text for today. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, consider that statement. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That in wisdom itself, right, that in wisdom itself, the world did not know God through wisdom. So therefore, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, the hope of this world would have us endlessly searching for something to cling to. Jews seek signs, demand signs, rather. Greeks seek wisdom. The hope of this world would have us endlessly searching for something to cling to, endlessly searching for traces of love, endlessly searching for sources of joy, endlessly searching for peace, endlessly searching for affirmation. But in Christ, God has displayed not only his manifold wisdom, his providential working from the foundation of the world, but his abundant power as well. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the beauty of Christmas. This is what we also see in Colossians 1. I encourage you to turn there or again the verse will be on the screen for you. But in Colossians 1 as Paul is expounding on the preeminence of Christ and how Christ had been God's plan from the beginning, we see Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, he being Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there we see that in the preeminence and the glory of God, his manifold wisdom was declared in Christ that he might reconcile to himself all things for those who believe. So what does this mean? Unless God grants faith, man cannot grasp the hope, the love, the joy, or peace of the gospel. To Jews, it's offensive to speak of a crucified Messiah. So show me signs. I demand it. For the highly philosophical Greeks, a, a, a crucified, resurrected Messiah doesn't make sense. An incarnate Messiah doesn't make sense. So we seek wisdom. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But here, those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So they seek signs and wisdom. So our culture seeks these things elsewhere. Our culture will seek all manner of fulfillment and joy and peace and, and love and hope everywhere else that we can think of. How do we know? Because so too we once walked among them. But this is the power and wisdom of God. So the only one who can make it so that our finite hearts and finite brains can comprehend and believe is God. You see, the hope of Christmas is the power of God to save those who believe. Paul continues in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God uses what is foolish and weak in this world to make known his manifold power and wisdom. What is weaker than a, veil, a flesh-veiled child in a manger? He goes on to say, in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Christ came to be these things for us. The wisdom of, from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The hope of Christmas is the power of God to save those who believe. The hope of Christmas is salvation in Christ. So that we have no thing to boast in. We have no other person. We can't boast in Paul or Cephas or Apollos. But we can boast in the word of the cross, which begins with the story of Christmas. So this Christmas, church, let your boast be in the Lord. The challenge there is that we have to look in this mirror of God's word and be challenged to see, does it give a reflection of what's in our heart? Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Am I still following the foolishness of my heart? Am I still following the weakness of my flesh? Or have I crucified those at the cross of Christ, that through my lowliness, God would display his manifold glory in the gospel. This is the call of the church. This Christmas, let our boasts be in the Lord, let our focus be on the cross, and let our message be the gospel. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning. Having celebrated a season of thanks, we come ultimately to give thanks for your sending of Christ. I pray that this would frame our understanding and our celebration of this Christmas season, that our hope can only be found, true hope can only be found in looking to the gospel where we see that you sent Christ to be to us righteousness and sanctification, to display your wisdom, to make known to us your power to save. Well, I pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, we would do so with the cross in full view, with salvation at the forefront, knowing that in Christ you became Emmanuel, God with us, that you might save us from our sins. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that does not 
know this truth, who has not submitted to this truth, but who is still living in the weakness of the flesh, still indulging in the desires of the heart, I pray that you would ransom them through this truth, through your gospel, that you would pierce their hearts, draw them to yourself, bring them to repentance. For those who have believed, I pray, Lord, that you would sharply focus our minds and hearts to celebrate you truly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.